Good morning. Welcome to Joy Christian Center. It is Cinco de Mayo. And uh, yeah, why don't I pray for us and then we'll get into this thing, this thing. Heavenly Father, we again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time. We thank you that you've uh, made this family possible, that we can come boldly. Um, Lord, I pray that we, even though that we can come boldly, we wouldn't forget just how far we were from you, how far we had fallen, and just the, the greatness of the distance that you, that you bridged to save us um, as sinners wandering away from you. Um, Lord, I pray that it wouldn't be me that speaks. I pray that you would reveal more of your character, more of Jesus um, through this time. And ultimately, Lord, our, our goal is to leave along with praising you, but to leave looking more like Jesus, to actually be changed, to actually have grown. Um, so we just pray that you would do that this morning. Holy Spirit, that you would have your way with us. In your son's name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, if you would turn to the book of Jonah. If you don't, you can look up there. Um, I am very excited for this. Um, yes, it is. Uh, I'm going to be in ESV for anyone who cares. Uh, but a little disclaimer, everything that I'm about to say, I learned quite recently. Um, and I feel like, I don't know, like I feel like that's tacky. Like you're supposed to have all these sermons like in your back pocket, ready to go. Stuff that you learned like back in seminary. Patty is saying no. Yes. So I'm, I'm currently excited about it. And since I'm still a student, I figured I could present it to you guys as a student and as a scholar. Um, also, but since I recently learned it, I, I recently learned it from a series of podcasts by a pastor and speaker by the name of Tim Mackey. His podcast is titled Exploring My Strange Bible. And the first five episodes, each were like 45 minutes long, each one was on Jonah. So I'm taking pretty much everything that I've learned from those five and condensing it into one sermon. So yeah, um, before I get going, some of the things that I'm going to be saying might be a little unsettling because they're new, because um, we're going to be talking about the nature of the book itself before we actually start reading and like extrapolating lessons and all that stuff. Um, but some of the things I might say might be foreign, might be a little uncomfortable to hear. Um, I implore you that as I submit these ideas that um, you don't dismiss them, because um, I think Rick and Patty could attest to the human mind being obsessed with comfort and the familiar, and so it's much easier to dig our heels into what we already know, regardless of how convincing or unconvincing the evidence is before us. Um, but some of the things that I've learned about Jonah and the, the nature of the book itself as Hebrew literature, I think is very exciting to talk about. Um, so I implore you, hear me out. So getting into the book of Jonah, um, there are two views about the book of Jonah and what it is. Um, the first one, which is, I think, the most widely held view, um, I would imagine we probably don't even know about the other view, which is I'm going to be the one that's, that we're going to talk about. But the first view is that it is, it is a story that happened to Jonah. He rebelled against God, was swallowed by a fish, and went and preached uh, a very successful sermon to the Ninevites, and uh, then gets really angry at God that God was merciful. Um, but the, the, view, the first view is that it is a historical narrative and that it really happened. There is an alternative view that thinks that the author did not meant for this to be taken literally, that it wasn't a real recounting of events that happened to Jonah, but rather a parable with a true named figure, because um, Jonah, we do have a prophecy from Jonah in Kings, um, 
but that the story is a parable to teach a lesson to the Hebrews, to the Jewish people. Um, so since we're already ulti- um, intimately familiar with the first one, just it being history, it being a story, I feel like that's how most of us are raised, you know, Veggie Tales, you know, all the, all the children's books. Um, so I'm going to talk a little bit about why it could be a parable. And I'm not here to settle the dispute. Obviously, this is still a dispute. This is still a thing that people don't agree on, so it's, I'm certainly not going to settle it. Um, but just some of this evidence I thought was quite fascinating. And if you go to the first verse of Jonah, you would, you would read uh, chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that the great city, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And so when you read the lines, the word of the Lord came to, naturally you would think that you're reading a book of prophecy. Naturally. And in fact, if you turn the page, because Jonah's like a page long, if you turn the page to Micah, it starts the exact same way. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth, Morasheth, I don't know, in the days of Jotam, Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem, and what follows after the word of the Lord came to is all of the prophetic literature, the prophetic poetry that the prophet then delivers to the recipients. But Jonah is not like that. Jonah receives a word, and then it is not about his prophetic literature. It is about him, which is unlike any other book and any other prophecy book in the Bible. Um, furthermore, there is a lot of hyperbole in Jonah. It's very kind of comic booky. Um, the word gadol which is Hebrew for big or huge or great, is used 15 times in two pages. You know, the city is huge, the fish is huge, the storm is huge. You know, everything is just exaggerated and wild and large, kind of giving it like a comic book sort of feel. Um, if you take all this into account, the silliness, the fact that it's, it starts out like a prophecy book, but then it isn't read like a prophecy book, all the exaggeration and all the hyperbole, if you take this into account, you can start to see where the story becomes then satirical, kind of like Saturday Night Live. And satire is humor that is aimed at the listeners. So like when you watch Saturday Night Live, it's making fun of American culture, which is us, and you're laughing at it, but you're really laughing at what you find funny. You're laughing at what you think is cool, like whether it's movies, whether it's politics. And so you start to read Jonah, and you might be thinking like, ah, oh, Jonah, like what an idiot, like running from God, like what a... But at the end of the story, you realize, oh, I'm Jonah, and this was all aimed at me, which would have been especially true for the Hebrews that would have received the story. Um, So that's about it for the talking about the evidence and whatever. So now we're going to get into the actual book with a few more details, um, specifically about Jonah, kind of in the silliness of the book. Um, Jonah means dove. Son of Amitai uh, means faithfulness. So dove sounds like a very graceful, like, dove, son of faithfulness. But is Jonah a very faithful character in the book? No. In fact, second verse, third verse, he's, like, leaving already. So he's already behaving out of his character, and that's also kind of a pattern throughout the story. All the people in the story do not behave according to their character. Um, Before we get into the actual, like, lessons that we can draw from Jonah, if the idea that it's a parable, that it's fiction, is a little unsettling, um, I do want to offer you some comfort because um, when I was taught things like that about other books in the Bible, um, I wasn't given any consolation, so I just had to kind of wrestle with it on my own. 
Um, so I would submit to you that if the point of the Bible is to know more about the character of God, to know him more, and to reveal Christ, then does it matter if it's parable or if it's true, if the book is accomplishing the same task? And so someone did likewise me with the book of Job. They said, hey, like, there's people who think that the book of Job is fictional because it's very just kind of dramatized. And, and they gave their reasons. And that was very unsettling in the moment. I was like, oh, but, but the inerrancy of the Bible, and, 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 and is it inspiring? Like, can we trust it? And I started to go to all these conclusions. And then, like, in a moment, which I guess I would attribute to God, I was like, wait, if what I learned about God, is that still true? And they said, yes, that's all still true. It's like, oh. So everything that I've learned about God from the book is still con- true and consistent with God, then, then no, I haven't been robbed of anything. I haven't been robbed of what I know about God. I haven't been robbed of any of the truths. I've just, all that's changed is the nature of, of the, the text, the nature of the literature. And quite frankly, there's many types of literature in the Bible. We have prophecy. We have poetry in the Psalms. We have erotic poetry in the Song of Psalms. We have words of wisdom passed on from a father to a son. Um, and this could very well be satirical Saturday Night Live parable. But however you read it, if we read it and look at Jonah as how can we find ourselves in that, how can we relate, um, a lot can be learned. And so I don't know if I'm going to read all of it right now. It's certainly short enough to read all of it. Um, But I'm going to start reading. Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, dove, son of faithfulness, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great, there's the word great, city and call out against it for their evil has come up before me but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish so he paid the fare and went and go and wait hold on I'm sorry going to Tarshish so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord Um, another side note if my geography is correct, from what I learned in the series, Tarshish was like the last port like near the gates of Gibraltar before like the rest of the world that had not been yet explored. So Tarshish was like the last known place you could go, like the furthest known place you could go. So for us, it would be like the equivalent of like saying Timbuktu. So again, just the extremity and the ridiculousness of the story. He, could, he didn't just go down to Egypt. He didn't just go to like the other direction. He went as far as he could have, or at least he was planning on going as far as he could have. But the Lord hurled a great, there's the word great again, wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the seas that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Verse 7, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on, who account, on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and a lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? He said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord. That's kind of rich, because he's already fleeing the Lord that he fears. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. That's a very big word. 
He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord. Now, this is the Lord, all caps. So now they're calling out to the God of the Hebrews, Yahweh. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. We'll stop there. Again, no one in the story really behaves to their kind of stereotypic trope that they're playing. No one, no one acts according to their roles. So here we have Jonah, dove, son of faithfulness, where the Lord came to. He even says about himself, I'm a Hebrew who fears the Lord. But right from the get-go, verse 3, he is fleeing in the other direction, not just fleeing in the other direction, but as far as he possibly can. And here we have pagan fishermen, not fishermen, pagan um, sailors, mariners. And granted, the storm seems scary enough, but they go from, like, sacrificing and worshiping and calling out to their own gods to, with this one ordeal, they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. So I don't know, like, what kind of vows these are, if these are, like, lifelong vows or, you know, financial vows or, like, the text doesn't tell us. But it's interesting that here we have a set of pagan worshipers who are on sea, and like that, they switch over and start to worship the God of the Hebrews. So it seems like everywhere Jonah goes, in his faithlessness, in his wake, people who do not believe in God do believe in God. So again, kind of strange, kind of extreme. Um, one of the things that uh, Tim Mackey, the, the guy that I'm getting a lot of this from, mentioned is whenever you buy like a kid's book on Jonah, the thing on the cover is the big fish, you know? But the fish is actually like in two verses in the whole book. And so the, the whole point that he was saying, I'm trying to rescue the story from VeggieTales so that you don't think of a talking cucumber when you read the story and instead you think of everything that he then talks about. So, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Is that possible? Can God do anything? Yes. That's it. That was the first mention of the fish, and the only other mention is when he's vomited out. So that's all that's mentioned about the fish. Then Jonah has this eloquent prayer. He prayed to the Lord from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall, look, I, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay, salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out of dry land. It's very kind of funny that we have this very eloquent prayer, and then we see the word vomit right after it. Um, so, a bunch has happened. Very um, concise brevity in this story. So,
Jonah fleeing from the Lord, he is missing out on an opportunity to be a part of something big. And as we later see, he preaches a, in Hebrew, a five-word sermon. Um, and an entire city repents, which is like wildly successful. Um, but he is so reluctant, and we'll look at why he is so reluctant. And in so many stories, it, it's, he, we think that he's afraid of the Assyrians, of the, of the Ninevites, which is the capital city of Assyria. Um, but he later tells them that it's, it's not because he was afraid. It's because he didn't want mercy to befall the Ninevites. And, like, my prayer before we started was to, for me to help me trust the Lord because I feel like I have a good plan for my life. I think I know what's up. I think I know what's best for me. And if for any of you that have been parents, um, it doesn't work. Your children has a plan. They know what they want. They see something. They want it. Um, it reminds me of an Ariana Grande song. <laughs> they see something and they want it and they go after it. But they're not aware of the dangers around them. They're not aware of running out into traffic. They're not aware of like bicycles that might hit them. They're not aware of the stove that's hot. They are just purely operating on emotion and what they want and what they think is best for their life. And they've got a plan. And whenever you come barging in to ruin that plan, they're very frustrated. And here we have Jonah who is a prophet. He's already a prophet. We have, a, again, he's a real prophet. We have a prophecy from him from 2 Kings. I think it's 2 Kings. But he's faced with this task and rather than be a part of it, which would be so big, again, wildly successful, he chooses to run away because he thinks he knows what's better. And he doesn't want mercy to befall the Assyrians. Now, a little bit about the Assyrians. Um, they were enemies of the Jews. Um, they were brilliant uh, military tacticians, um, engagers of war. And they were very brutal. Um, one of the things that they were known for was skinning people alive in the cities that they had captured. Um, so now we can start to see, when you think of that, you think, oh, yeah, Jonah would be afraid of the people who skin people alive. But again, that's not the reason he gives. Them being the enemies of Jonah, he doesn't want them to receive mercy. So we start to get, like, an idea of why he would flee. Um, and so he does, and the Lord has to arrest his reckless path with a, a giant fish, who then swallows him, and God brings him to the end of himself. He, like, almost literally hits rock bottom. I don't know if there's a place lower than the belly of a fish. Um, I don't know if anyone has fallen a greater distance aside from Satan than Jonah with his whole ordeal of going the wrong way and then being swallowed by a fish. But God brings him to the end of himself to say, look, like, you need to cut this out. You're being a brat. You're being a seven-year-old in Toys R Us who's not getting what they want, brat. And God has to do, go to all this work, the, the great sea and and the great fish and swallows him up. And Jonah finally realizes, um, prays a very eloquent prayer about the steadfast love of God and, and his faithfulness and his open ear to Jonah. And God spits him out. It's interesting, though, that he prays this prayer because what follows, it, it, it makes me wonder if Jonah even really meant the prayer. I don't know if he was just in dire straits, so then he prayed a really heartfelt prayer. But immediately afterward, it, it seems like he almost didn't mean it. So let's go ahead and continue on in chapter 3. So, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Like, oh, right. The whole point of this story was to talk to Nineveh. I got so distracted with the fish that I forgot. So, Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. So, he's finally being faithful for once, finally living up to his namesake, um, according to the word of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. 
Um, if I'm understanding correctly, that is another exaggeration. Three days journey in breadth walking would be like 45 miles or something, like 40 some odd miles, which is way larger than any city at the time. And we know from like excavation that the city was seven miles around. So again, everything is just kind of exaggerated. It's a great city, three days to walk through it. Jonah began to go into the city in a day's journey, and he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's eight words in English, and it's five words in Hebrew. It's curious that he doesn't mention anything about God. He doesn't mention anything about their wickedness that has risen up to God, which is why this reprimand, why this, this, um, why this you know, calling them out on their wickedness is happening. It's just that in 40 days, you'll be overthrown. And some people think it's because he was kind of like prophetically sabotaging them because he still didn't want them to repent. He wanted to give them as little information to go on but still like be obedient. So he gave them a five-word sermon. <laughs> and the people of Nineveh believed God, believed God who wasn't mentioned in the sermon. They called for a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, word travels fast, I guess, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast herd nor flock taste anything, let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. It's interesting that they're attributing all this disaster and calamity to a God that wasn't even mentioned in Jonah's sermon. And isn't it also more interesting that the brilliant military tacticians who at this point were the greatest empire there was, and incredibly brutal, skinning people alive, have paper-thin consciousses. With a five-sermon, five-word sermon, they snap like that and are already repenting, sackcloth ashes the whole nine yards, to a god that wasn't even mentioned in the sermon. <laughs> Down to the cows. Even the cows repent. Wild. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil, God relented, of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah, chapter 4, exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So he preaches the most successful sermon in history, and he wants to die because he's mad that God is too nice. What he just said, the list of attributes that he just gave to God are literally word for word right out of Exodus, which I'm going to turn there now. It's Exodus 34, verse 6. And this is the part where Moses makes new tablets. And so God's saying, cut for yourself new tablets, and they're on the mountaintop. Um, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So the Lord descended and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And then verse 6. It's always cool that he actually talks about himself because that's like the real like juicy stuff. Exodus 34 verse 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, 
a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So Jonah, being a prophet, who likely would have known the story of Exodus, quotes that. I knew that you were a God a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. I knew that this is how you do. You have this knack for being merciful to people when they repent. You have a knack for being gracious. You have a, almost like I, I heard a, poet, a poem that said that God is addicted to being merciful, which is kind of interesting. And frankly, I don't know if we can blame Jonah in light of who the Assyrians are and what they've done to the Hebrew people, skinning people alive, I keep saying that so you kind of get like, oh, this is bad. These are bad people. I don't know if we can blame him for being so resilient to the idea of his enemies being forgiven. Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he Till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed, there's a lot of appointing going on right now, a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and he asked that he might die. Again, he's like, I just want to die. So miserable. Such a successful sermon, boo-hoo. I just want to die. It is better for me to die than live. But God said to Jonah, verse 9, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. What a brat. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. Interesting, the Lord has a heart for cows. And it ends. That is the end of Jonah, guys. There's not even, uh, there's not even a response from Jonah. Like, I think Job has a kind of a nice bow on the end of Job. There's a lot of back and forth between Job and his friends, and finally God speaks out of the whirlwind, and there's a, there's a conclusion to the story. But we know that God relented from his anger, did not have the calamity and disaster befall the Ninevites. I guess Jonah wasn't entirely sure what was going to go down for whatever reason, so he went to go watch the fireworks, if there were going to be any fireworks, and then choose out God for being too nice and too merciful to the Ninevites. Now, we have a prophet, dove son of faithfulness, who is faithless for almost the entire story running from this plan of God that God has invited him to be a part of. And isn't that like us? We're called, and not just, I, I don't mean necessarily a large call to salvation and like the big missionary call, but we have, we're very good at compartmentalizing. And I think, again, the psychologists in our church will attest to this. We're very good at compartmentalizing, and we want to surrender the areas of our life and of our heart and of our mind to God that we're okay with giving over. And I remember Pastor Ernie talked about this a lot. But there are areas in our life that I would argue because it's true of me, that are not fully surrendered, that are fleeing to Tarshish, because I don't want Jesus to invade those areas into clean house. I want those areas to be how I want them. 
chapter 2, we have Jonah who's reached rock bottom, and it, it took God throwing a, a storm and a great fish at him to finally bring him to the end of, him, of himself. He had nowhere to go. So he's, I don't know, th- and, and, and it took him three days in the belly of a fish to finally, like, get over it, get over himself. So I just imagine him just, like, sitting, like, on, like, a chunk of, like, ship, I don't know, with, like, stomach acid all around him and, like, trying not to touch it, like, playing lava, and just, like, pouting, like, just so mad, like, such a, like, he's just a brat. Through the whole story, he's just a seven-year-old Toys R Us brat. Finally comes the end of himself. Now, I don't know this kind of experience personally, but maybe some of you do, where God has had to bring you to dire straits, whether it be financially, whether it be relationally, in marriages, in children, or in work, or in school, the end of your resources to, to finally get your attention. Thankfully, it's not literally in your life a big fish. And if it ever was, I'd love to hear about it. So we have a, a, a wayward, wandering prophet who's faithless. I can identify with that. Being brought to the end of ourselves, being brought to the end of all foreseeable good circumstances, being in the belly of a fish, which I would imagine we could say would, would be fear of death. For God to finally arrest Jonah and arrest his heart, to finally be on board with this super dope sermon that's going to be wildly successful. And then we have Jonah who goes finally, he's being obedient, but I'm guessing through like grimaced teeth, and preaches a five-word sermon, doesn't mention God, doesn't mention why, just gives them a time, and his enemies repent. And I also... I've had, I've never, ha- I've, never, I've never been a victim in my life. My, both of my parents are in the room now. They are still married. The kind provided for me. I have no, I have no, like, heavy baggage, at least that I'm aware of. Maybe I can talk to Brooke and Patty later and they can dig some stuff out. But, <laughs> um, but I don't know calamity. I don't know hardship. I have not been a victim. I have not been under the thumb of anyone. Never in fear for my life. But maybe if some of you have, then maybe you would relate to Jonah and his unwillingness to forgive. And we kind of like, uh, like we roll our eyes at Jonah, like, what an idiot, but like, that can be us. And frankly, I don't, I don't blame him for, for the, his heart towards the Ninevites. I mean, I don't blame him. And although as Christians, we are agents of forgiveness, we have been forgiven of much, and therefore we forgive much, there are, there are times, there are people that can make that very hard. And I, I learned this when a friend of mine um, who had a, has a very, uh, not a very good stepfather and um, was a, a victim of some pretty bad atrocities. And when they were wrestling with this relationship and uh, how it was affecting uh, their mother and the stepfather and like the law being involved and then the siblings and how they worked into all that, and they were asking for help and for advice, and for prayer. And I said, you just need to forgive him. Which was biblically correct. We, as Christians, as believers, need to forgive. Theologically correct, we need to forgive. That was situationally inappropriate. Because what that did to that person was, it very loudly said, I don't really actually understand what you're going through. Because if I could, for a moment, even begin to relate to the kind of pain of fearing the, the man in your house who's supposed to take care of you and supposed to be gentle and a leader, fearing that man who is 
transgressed against you greatly, I might have been a little slower with it. You should just forgive. But I didn't know. I didn't know to be gentle. I didn't know to shut up. I just reached into my trail mix bag of Bible verses and said, you just forgive him. Problem solved. So I don't know if I can sit here and justifiably like, like blame Jonah and chew Jonah out for being so, I don't know if I can call this racist because he probably has like a bit of a victim uh, kind of complex going. But we're called to, to be a part of something bigger. God calls every aspect of our lives. So it might, we, not, we might not be fleeing, fleeing physically, but we might have aspects of our minds and of our hearts that are fleeing the sovereignty and the reach of God. And some of you guys may have truly, truly been hurt. But being children of God, now that we're children, who have been forgiven of much, we have to learn to forgive much. And if you are in a conversation with someone who is wrestling with forgiveness, I implore you to be slow and be gentle with them, like I was not. <laughs> wow, I could not have breathed so hard into the mic. <coughs> so, another interesting thing that I forgot to mention is that there's no dates or kings given in the book of Jonah, which is usually a common aspect of any prophecy book. It's, you know, the kings of this time. And this. Anyways, um, I would implore you guys to, to read and reread Jonah with this satirical lens and to dwell on the various stages of his rebellion and then arrest and then sermon and then chewing out of God. Um, because I think the more that we dwell on it, the more that we can start to identify and align with the things of Jonah and the more we can start to see, oh, like, this is meant for us. Some of the things I think about are Jonah being so hateful to the, the Ninevites, and with some good reasons. Um, but it makes me think of how out in the world, people are so much more familiar with what we as Christians are against than what we are for. We are known for who we hate and what we hate and not how we love. We're not known for loving one another. In fact, I, one of the most common criticisms um, that I think I hear, whether it's in real conversations or just things that I read about, is that why are there so many different denominations? Why are there so many different churches? Why are there so many different names? And people say, like, oh, the Christians, they can't even agree, so why would, I, why would I align with them? And then we have certain churches and certain individuals who very aggressively um, will talk about the sins that ought not be done out in the world, um, which when has that ever worked? But what this has done is it's given us a bad name, and we've be, we're not known to be a forgiving people. We're not known to be a welcoming people, and we're not known to be a loving people, and that's sad. Because we are agents of love. We are agents of forgiveness. We have been loved so much by a God who is faithful, whose mercies are new every day. We've been forgiven of much. You know, I have a long list of things that I can think of right away, and I know you guys too do too. So my, I guess my, uh, my request is how can we be looking for ways to not be the stereotypical Christian, stereotypical Christians that people think we are now? How can we overcome these accusations of hate, of a lack of forgiveness, of a judgmental mind? Because the world is, des whether or not they know it, they are desperate to know the affections of our Heavenly Father. Um, and they have, there's all these, you know, all these wells throughout life that are offering salty water, and we know of the one well that is the living water, but we are too busy pointing fingers and telling people that they're, they're in sin and that they're wrong about this for them to even bother coming and drinking. 
And I'm not saying that any of you have that problem. I'm not saying that we are a church guilty of being judgmental, but we belong to a bride that has a shaking finger at the world who is desperate to know the affections of our Heavenly Father. So I would implore you to search your own hearts for those little areas where maybe your heart and mind aren't fully surrendered to God. Um, Look for opportunities to where instead of picking up a stone, to instead drop it and share the love of Christ and the gospel. That people are loved as they are. And that is about it, guys. I tried to speak a little slower because I know I'm guilty of like talking like a chipmunk um, over the mic. <laughs> but no. Um, so we're going to get into a time of worship right now. So if I could have the band come back up. Um, we have one more new song for you guys. It's very brief. It's a chorus and a bridge. Um, and I try not to just do a song that I thought was really cool the week before because there'd be a new song every week and that wouldn't be cool. Um, but the song is called Surrounded and, or Fight My Battles. And it's this idea that, you know, the Bible says we, we, um, we fight against principalities, we don't fight against flesh and blood. And again, if you guys relate to this, then awesome. Um, but we are such a, f- like a feeble and fickle and vulnerable people. It's very appropriate that we are called sheep in the Bible because sheep are just dumb and vulnerable. Yeah. I mean, me too, me too. Um, I was talking with some friends, and they were talking about how, like, when a sheep would wander off too often, that um, the shepherd would break its legs gently so that it could heal and heal quickly. Um, and then while the legs were broken, it would, the shepherd would um, ha- kind of have it over his shoulders and speak to it so that the sheep would learn its voice and to know you don't wander off like that. Um, and how much like that are we? That we are vulnerable, that we are fragile. Um, and sometimes it takes God to break us or to bring us to the belly of a fish to finally get our attention from being so wayward. Um, but in that, we're so helpless and so powerless in these battles um, while we put on the full armor of God, there are, there, are, there are powers that are just so much bigger than ourselves, apart from the Holy Spirit indwelt in us. And sometimes all you're left with is praise. And this idea of when I have nothing left, I have no more resources, I am surrounded, but I'm going to sing. Patty talked about a sermon where Paul and some of the other apostles were imprisoned and they were singing. And from that, they were set free supernaturally. Um, but I think it's really a really cool idea and a really fitting idea for people who are so vulnerable, so in so much need of God and, and of his grace that whether we are in much or whether we are in uh, famine, whether we are comfortable or whether we are uncomfortable, whether we are prisoners or free, that it is very fitting for us to sing. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to get into a time of worship. Heavenly Father, We pray that your word would continue to impact us. um, That it would continue to have an effect. Holy Spirit, that you would continue to work on our hearts because we need the help. Our hearts need the help. We pray that you would arrest our reckless and wayward wanderings, Lord. That you would help us surrender, Lord. We sing songs of I surrender, but oftentimes we don't even mean it or we're not even aware of the areas that aren't surrendered. We pray that you would make us aware. That you would show us the ways that we haven't let Jesus into. 
And Lord, you're our Father. We run out into the street and we don't even look for cars and you're yelling at us to come back and we don't even realize that it's because you have what's best for us. You want what's best for us, that you love us ferociously. Help us to look past our idea of the good life and to trust in your idea of the good life. And Lord, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would comfort us when all we can do is sin.
Nothing that can separate my heart from your 